everybody um right before we left it's interesting that you guys could still hear us i couldn't tell my entire screen froze and it just kept giving me this weird error um that said i needed to exit out of my live session so we were talking about how um jenna had a covid scare um due to the workplace um and utah is having quite a few um covid scares right now just because the pandemic is we're going through phases of kind of dropping in case numbers and then going back up. And then as soon as everybody gets comfortable, you know, it just, it's been hectic. So right now the state has quite a few COVID cases. We jumped up from, I want to say like 500 to 400 cases a day to the last two days we've had 2000 cases. So we're trying to be as cautious as we can. Um, and so since we're not sure you know, whether Jenna has it, we'd rather play it safe. And so hopefully over the next couple of months, we can get a setup put together that allows Jenna to join in and co-host with me while we're in separate locations, which will be really awesome. So for today, we're going to have Jason, my boyfriend, step in and fill in for Jenna. Hello, everyone. So we're kind of excited. Me and Jason, we don't Jason, true crime isn't your biggest thing ever, but I feel like the case that you found today, I hope, was kind of interesting to you. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I would say that I don't, uh, I'm not quite as passionate as both Jenna and you, but uh, I still find it very interesting, especially the psychological aspect of it. And so, you know, I wanted to find something that would fit both my interests but also fit with this kind of true crime. And so I think I did today. I think I found something that would work. Yeah. And and hopefully we'll live up to both yours and Jenna's <laughs> expectations. So well, Jenna, I hope that uh, I hope that you're okay with me doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I think me and Jenna have set the bar pretty low <laughs> for our stories over the last eight episodes. And this is our ninth episode, um, which is really exciting. And over the course of Let's see, I think we started in August, so over the course of, I want to say, a month and a half or so, we've gained, I want to say, like 120 Facebook followers, and me and Jenna keep up with the statistics on our Podbean account, and we kind of like to see where our followers are located and where these viewers are coming from, and over the last month and a half, we've gotten viewers from Sweden, France, Ireland, the United Kingdom, um, I checked recently, and we have Canada as well. So yeah. it's really crazy how how it's been progressing in such a short time. Yeah, and I think it's great, and <laughs> and I know that uh, we're live right now, but I do want to say that I'm proud of both of you for continuing to do this. So uh, nice. I think this is really awesome, and I am uh, excited to be a part of this. And uh, you know, and I'm glad that you guys are continuing this. And yeah. uh, to answer that question, I am drinking water so I am completely sober. (laughs) (laughs) Even I'm drinking water today. We had a late night. We recently closed on our house together so we've had a very busy probably few months. I mean even since the podcast started we've been in the process I think of buying the house and it's all finally coming to this peak where we closed on our house yesterday and it's just been it's crazy so the next few days, if not few weeks, is going to be spent packing and moving. And, and yeah. at the end of all of it, it's going to be, it's going to be 
a really good setup that we're hoping to have in our new house. So we're really excited for that over the next few months too. It's true. We have a room planned to be dedicated to house our vast collection of books yeah. and some comfy chairs along with a setup to do to continue the podcast and we plan to call it our our cafe room as it will give a, a warm cozy feeling as as they continue to do their uh, their podcast for the future. Yeah it's going to be exciting we want to have a little setup where we can drink coffee or make tea while we're getting ready and doing our notes and we want to have microphones ready to go and it's going to be really exciting so hopefully over the next few weeks me and Jenna can continue to release content even during all this craziness, but it, there is a possibility that there could be some breaks in between, just between the moving and me being on call for my current job. So we'll still try to release weekly. I think that there's a potential for the dates that we release. We try to go live on Saturday and I've been trying to release pretty immediately after that if I can, just because I took a break and started releasing on Thursdays, um, but it seems like it was easy to miss when I released on Thursdays, just because there's such a long gap between when we go live and when the content comes. So I want to try and pick it up and see if I can release quickly on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings. So yeah. it'll be good. And uh, just to throw in, you know, we appreciate uh, everyone listening and, uh, you know, we love feedback and, you know, I think Celia and Jenna are very busy juggling normal life with doing the podcast. So if you guys come across cases, I, I know that uh, Celia's mom, Tracy, has thrown out some ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, feel free to message them over, and I guarantee you that they will start digging into them. Absolutely. You know, and, and don't feel like, you know, your, your idea is being lost because it's not done immediately because there's just so many different cases. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we would love having you guys share that with us. Yeah, it's really helpful for us because as like really avid listeners of true crime content and documentaries and things along those lines, we can get extremely saturated with some of the popular cases. And it's so enjoyable for us to be able to have suggestions of different cases and to be able to find new things that we didn't even know about. And it, it allows us to bring new information to the table and it's enjoyable for us to be able to do that research and, and put these stories together to share with everybody. So it's really awesome. Yeah, exactly. Well, if you guys do have any stories that you think of, it's really helpful to comment on our episodes that get released um, the night of the live episode or the nights after. You can also comment on our Facebook page. Um, we've had a huge uptick in followers on our Facebook page, so we're hoping that over the next few weeks and months and hopefully years that will continue to grow and that that audience will allow us to get more suggestions and more feedback and comments. So um, with that being said, I appreciate everybody who's here listening to us. My grandma's commenting, oh, the 2020 episode on the Vanessa, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. I think it's, is it Gillen or Gil Gian, maybe? Could be. I know that it's a Hispanic last name, but um, that case actually is really relevant to what Jason's story is going to be about today, because it's just yet another example of a case revolving around the military and military installations and stuff and, like that. Yeah, and how it was, uh, <clears throat> it was trying to be hid by the military because 
you know, of course they didn't want that information to leak out. So yeah, uh, yeah that's a really good one. Uh, one that Celia and I have actually talked about. And, uh, you know, so we will definitely look into that one for a yeah. future episode possibly. I think that would make a really good episode. Yeah. And I, I keep it. And I apologize. I'm not trying to overstep my bounds. I, I, uh, I know this is Jenna and Celia's thing. I'm just getting real comfortable. So, you know, <laughs> don't, <laughs> like don't feel like I'm kicking you out, Jenna. I like it. I keep saying we when I should say you guys, but that's just, oh, well, I want to feel like I you want to feel part. I want to feel like I'm a part of it. <laughs> well, you're definitely a part of it. It's fun to like when me and Jenna do these podcasts and we do it live and stuff afterwards, Jason's always sitting out on the couch waiting for us to come out. And I'm sure that he gets to listen to the shit show as it <laughs> happens. <laughs> he gets to witness it firsthand. So that's always exciting. This too. one might be a tamer episode just because there's not a lot of alcohol. Yeah, so there's not a lot of alcohol. I, I won't hear as much giggling and, and a lot of, you know, like, what the fuck? You know, so. <laughs> It'll be good, though. So on the last episode, um, towards the end, we were reading through some of the comments, and my mom made a great comment about the Madeline McCann case. And I was torn because I've done a lot of really popular, like, all over worldwide news cases. Um, but honestly, as I was researching and getting myself up to date on the Madeline McCann case to see if I wanted to do it, there's actually been a recent update in the case. So to me, that kind of put it up another level of the plausibility of doing it and whether it's going to be interesting because I don't want to regurgitate information ever. I want to at least do my best to provide new content when I can. So I started researching the case and I made my notes on the general timeline just because it's been, I mean, Madeline McCann disappeared in um, mid to early 2007. That was quite a long time ago at this point, at least it feels like it. So I wanted to give everybody a brief summary of what happened back then, why this case was worldwide news in the first place. Um, and just kind of fill everybody in. Jason, do you know anything about the case? Do you remember it at all? I, I briefly remember watching a, a documentary with you on it yeah. and kind of the overview of the story. Um, it is kind of an, an, an interesting story in the fact that it, it kind of happened in a it, what we would think of as kind of a, a smaller country yeah. you know, that's not really talked about or heard about a lot in the news. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it did pique my interest a little bit. I don't know all the details, mm -hmm. and I know that you'll share those. But, uh, yeah, so I'm sort of up to speed. Okay. So the interesting thing about this case that gets talked about a lot is um, it's kind of that concept of, like, kids go missing all the time um, all over the world in all first world countries and third world countries. Um, children disappearing, unfortunately, is not... Um, it's it's a fairly common occurrence so what causes a case like a kidnapping or a disappearance to become national news um, and there's a lot of different elements that can create a you know tabloid headline news case like madeline mccann's was right um so what's different about the madeline mccann case there's a really awesome netflix docuseries called the disappearance the disappearance i'm sorry of madeline mccann and this kind of talks about how chilling this specific case really was. So you have to think this is an a well-to-do, 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 well-to-do. This was a well-to-do family that was going on vacation in Portugal. They wanted to enjoy the sunshine and the beach with their family and a lot of their friends. So you've got um, 
two doctors with two beautiful twins and another beautiful girl named Madeline. Um, and they decide to go out to dinner with their friends after their children had fallen asleep. And so a lot of people make comments about this case in specific because there's been people that have gone as far as to say that, you know, leaving your children in the apartment at the resort and going to dinner with friends is negligible. Um, and so it's really hard to, to look at this as somebody without kids it's hard for me to make a judgment of any kind just because I don't have the, I don't have the experience or the, you know, I, yeah. there, there's just nothing I can go on with that. Yeah. Um, when I look at it personally, I, I don't really think of this as negligent. I mean, they weren't leaving their children there for hours alone. They, they were going and checking on them fairly regularly. Yeah. Um, so I, I wouldn't consider it, you know, abuse and the fact that they left them, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's kind of the, that's the tough part about it is that it, you know, different people are going to see it different ways. Yeah, definitely. Well, and the thing about this case is like, I think a lot of people looking back on it, they kind of saw, some people probably saw a little bit of themselves. I mean, everybody takes their kid to the grocery store and turns their back and their kid is in a different aisle. I mean, <laughs> we've I, done that. I like, think we've personally all been, you know, have gone off on their own when yeah, we're in the store with our parents. Absolutely. So. And it's as a, I mean, I'm speaking on behalf of parents, even though I don't have children, but I feel like as a parent, it's probably one of the most frightening things is to turn your back and your kid's not there. Whether it's because it was just a freak accident or whether it's because you turned your own back for a few minutes, you know, there's just, there's something so frightening and sobering about the thought of turning your back or going to a different room or going down the street really quick and coming back and your child is missing. So that's kind of what a lot of the people who were in this documentary talked about, about the fact that, you know, children disappearing right out from under their parents' nose, that's newsworthy. You know, there's many cases, and it's not to say that they're not any more important, but when you, when you have cases of, you know, a 16-year-old girl that's a runaway that kind of takes off on her own accord, the news and journalists tend to look at that in a different light. It's not necessarily it's headline uh, material for them. So. Right. Right. This case was a bit different just because of how chilling it was for parents all over the world. So I feel like it's important to kind of look at the timeline here. So what happened that day is you've got the McCanns that comprise of Kate, the mother, and Jerry, the dad. They have two twins, Amelie and Sean. Um, they were both two. And then you have Madeline, who was three years old. So They grew up devoutly Catholic, both Kate and Jerry. Kate ended up with a degree in medicine. She was a practicing doctor for a while, but she decided to stay home to take care of the children. Um, Jerry, he ended up getting a degree in physiology and sports science, and he continues his education to get an MD, um, and he's a practicing physician at the time of all of this. So the McCanns arrive in Portugal on April 28th in 2007, along with friends and family. Um, And they're there for a vacation and they're there to relax and kind of take a break from their life where they currently live. Everybody probably has at least one experience where their kid wandered away in the supermarket or, you know, they walked to school alone and they don't come back to school or they don't come back home at the time that you think they were going to. And it's just, it's terrifying to think how quickly life can change. So that's kind of why I think the Madeline McCann case is so important to everybody. 
Um, and it's crazy that the Madeline McCann case is still in the news today because it was so, it basically blew up not only in Portugal and the United Kingdom, but we had journalists coming from America, from Canada, from all over the um, Europe, all of Europe, I should say. Um, and it, it overwhelmed the small community there. And it's really upsetting because you've got a story about a little girl who disappeared, but the people who live in that town and were present and experienced it, um, they have pretty sour taste because of all of the publicity that their small town got and how upsetting it was for these residents of this town um, to hear their, their neighbors and their village talked about in such a negative light. So just kind of wanted to give the backstory on some of the aftermath there. Did you let him out? Yes, I apologize. I am back. <laughs> That's okay. I could hear him whining back there, and it just kept getting worse, and I was like, we might as well just send it full send. Okay, so let's talk about the timeline. Um, so the McCanns arrived in Portugal on April 28th for their family vacation. Something that's really interesting that you don't always hear about when you look at brief documentaries, maybe like the hour-long documentaries on the case, is the morning of May 3rd, which is the day of the disappearance. Um, Kate and Jerry are having breakfast with Madeline, um, Amelie, and Sean, and Madeline asks them an odd question about the night before. Um, she basically asks her parents, point blank, a three-year-old, why didn't you guys hear me crying last night? Why weren't you here when I woke up crying? Wow. And a lot of people kind of disregard that as who knows what that could have been um, or why she would have said that, who knows why she woke up. But there are some people and police agencies that have investigated the case that wonder if the night previous, that maybe Madeline had been sleeping in her bed just like she was the next day and maybe something spooked her and whether the person or the thing that spooked her is also related to the disappearance the following day. So, Almost as if somebody were possibly watching her yeah. or something. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's kind of the thought. That is kind of creepy, yeah. I think. And yeah. I don't know what you do as a parent when you have, you know, you're on a vacation and you're kind of maybe spending time with your friends and then to be almost confronted that morning. Yeah, so. yeah. That's the morning of May 3rd. So at this point, they had been in Portugal on their vacation for five days now. Um, and so the kids, Madeline, as well as the twins, they would go to play in the kids center. It's like a daycare at the resort while their parents went off and did adult excursions with friends that were generally not safe for children. Um, so they would do a lot of water sports and things like that out on the ocean. And it's just it's not an environment that's appropriate for children. So all of the friends that were staying there, along with the McCanns, would have their kids go to this daycare. And here is where the children got to swim and they got to play all while being watched by daycare workers. So after a long day of swimming and tiring themselves out, 5 or 6 p.m. rolls around and all the kids are pooped. And you can tell in the interviews with um, Kate and Jerry about what happened that day that the kids were just worn out, which, yeah. you know, it's kind of the goal of, of something like that, I feel like. Yeah. So Kate starts deciding to get the kids ready for bed and Jerry heads out to play tennis. So a couple of hours later, 
Jerry returns, and the two, Kate and Jerry, decide to put the kids to bed in their respective bedroom. Um, the window is closed, the shutters are closed, and the door is left slightly open so that the parents can peek in whenever they need to. It's a classic bedtime routine in reality. Right, a lot right. of people, you know, they look and they say, you know, was anything different? Did anything strange happen? And according to them, this was pretty standard. So yeah. Um, at about 8.30 p.m. on May 3rd, um, Kate and Jerry leave to go to dinner with a group of their friends who were also on holiday at Praia de Luz. I want to say that there's about 10 of them in total, but I'm not 100% sure on that. So like I kind of talked about earlier, there's a lot of people who judge this decision to leave their kids. But I think something that's important to discuss is that the McCanns were not the only ones who left their kids in their apartments that night. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's a, it's a group of friends along with the McCanns. You know, they mm-hmm. all trust each other. They all know each other. Yeah. You know, and they're all on this resort with is its own, you know, thing. It's not yeah. like they were staying in a hotel way off. This yeah. is all a part of the same thing. Yeah. So, you know, maybe you talk about kind of the layout. Yeah. So it's interesting. The most important part is that all of this, like Jason said, is one resort. Um, you've got apartments that are kind of in, I want to say it's like an L shape. And then in the middle, which would be kind of like that courtyard area, you've got a tapas restaurant, and then you've got a pool, and there's kind of hedges along the lines that kind of guide you through the different paths that lead to the apartment. Right, gives the privacy for mm-hmm. the people eating and everything. Exactly. Yep. And so the McCanns were staying all the way on the top left-hand side of what would be those apartments. So their apartment is accessible from basically the street level, which mm-hmm. is kind of something to consider when you think about how this might have happened. Um, They weren't staying on the second or third floor, they were staying on a ground level apartment. So when you walk out of the McCann's apartment, you take a right, you walk down, I wanna say maybe 10 to 20 feet, you make another right and you're walking through the courtyard. And then you have to walk around the pool and then you take a left around the pool and you're at the tapas restaurant. It's, It's a probably a five minute walk, if not less. Right, and so, you know, as they, you know, are going out to eat and you know, have good fun and everything. Mm-hmm. Their kids are, you know, sleeping. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, they're hoping that are sleeping in the kind of hotel, you know, condo little area. Yeah. You know, and basically, sort of within eye distance. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it's it's not far away. Exactly. And so, I feel like a lot of people that are very critical of them saying that they let you know they their kids were off while yeah. they were going and having fun. You know, this is they were really basically a stone's throw away yeah, from them. Absolutely. So they go out with their friends to the tapas restaurant that's in that courtyard. Um, and at about 9.05, so we've got 8.30, they're going to dinner. At about 9.05, um, Jerry decides it's time to go check on the kids. So when he walks into the apartment, he makes a comment later on in the investigation that the door seemed to be positioned a little bit different than he had remembered leaving it. But he opens it, looks at the children, he sees that they're asleep, and he goes back to the restaurant. Um, About 10 minutes later, their friend Jane leaves the table to go check on her own children. She doesn't stop at the McCann's, but she does have to walk in that general direction as well. So she doesn't think much of it on this night in particular, but she's walking down the path to check on her children, and she sees a man carrying a child across the street. 
So this would hmm. be basically across the street that is where the McCann's apartment meets the street. And so she's walking along this path. She's walking near the McCann's. And when you walk out of the McCann's apartment, you're looking right at the street. And you could, in theory, walk out the door and walk across the street. So this is the street that Jane sees somebody holding what looks to be a small child in pajamas crossing the street. That's uh, coincidental. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It seems it, it seems insane for it to be a coincidence. But so 9.30 rolls around. Um, so this is about 25 minutes since Jerry went back to check on the children. So this is like, I mean, they're checking on the children regularly. This is every 20 to 30 minutes. It's not like a significant, in my opinion, amount of time is going by. Right. So they've got a friend named Matthew. He stands up and he essentially says, hey, I need to check on mine. Jerry, Kate, do you want me to check on yours too? The McCanns agree. Um, and so Matt goes into the par- apartment to check on the McCanns' children. But he doesn't go all the way into the bedroom. Some people can be critical of Matthew in this situation. Um, I feel like this is normal if you're in someone else's apartment and maybe you're not necessarily familiar with their children on that personal level. I feel like you're going to have that intuition that maybe if you open the door, you'll wake them up. So Matt decides to kind of listen to the door and he says that all seemed well and he leaves and goes back to dinner. And that was at 9.30. So 10 o'clock rolls around, and this is when Kate McCann herself gets up to check on the children. So when she walks in, she notices that the bedroom door is open. We know that that's normal because that's how they left the door when they left for dinner. So she walks over, and she pulls the door towards the frame just a little bit because it's like she feels like maybe it's too open. And as she pulls that door closer to the frame, a breeze slams the door shut. And so this is something that strikes her as this isn't normal. This is odd. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm sure everybody has kind of had that happen when you have an open window in the room and a breeze can easily slam your door shut behind you. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of what happened. And it's interesting because there shouldn't be a breeze because the windows and the shutters were closed when right. they left. So as soon as the door slams, Kate McCann knows that something's wrong. She opens the door and checks on the children. Um, it looks like Amelie and Sean are in the same room as Madeline. They are in their own bed and they're accounted for. She looks over and to... Those are the twins, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, those okay. are the twins. And when she looks over to Madeline's bed, she realizes that it's just blankets and that Madeline's not there. Okay. So legitimately, and I know this sounds kind of crazy to put it this way, but at this moment, Kate McCann walks out of the apartment and literally all fucking hell breaks loose on this resort. So Kate McCann goes, runs back to dinner. She's screaming and crying, saying that Madeline is gone. Something isn't right. And basically the figurative alarm is sounded. Um, The management of the resort come out. They start working on getting the police involved. People from their own apartments are coming out trying to to figure out what the commotion is. And yeah, they immediately start trying to help. So, and you know, this is something to set for the record that you know, immediately as she's found to be missing, they're yeah. already trying to look for her. Absolutely. There's no grace period. There's nothing. It's immediately, she's freaked out. Yeah. Getting people to help her. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's hard with missing children. I think it's a little bit different when it's a kid that's so young, that's three years old, um, because there's no, 
there's no thought that maybe she wandered off. I mean, it doesn't really make sense. And even if a young child that age did wander off, they're not going to make it far and they're not going to make it far quickly. Um, when you've got older children, you know, elementary school age, there is the possibility that they've wandered a distance. But with this case in specific, they know that that's not possible. True, true. So, um, like I said, the McCann sound the alarm and the entire resort starts looking. They search everywhere. They're searching every single room in the resort. They're searching the pool. They're searching the tapas restaurant. They are walking down to the beach. They're walking the coastline, trying to find children. They're trying to see if maybe she had fallen in between the rocks. Um, there's kind of down the street a ways, there's fields and there's bramble and there's woods and they're combing all of this area. I mean, within, you know, hours of finding Madeline missing. So most people know the story that follows here. There's a massive investigation that begins um, but what a lot of people don't know, in my opinion, is that early in this investigation, even the minutes and hours after Madeline is found missing, the police in Portugal started certain processes a little bit too late. So when you've got foreign, you know, people here on vacation, you've yeah. got a foreign girl that has gone missing from a resort, this is where in my opinion, it should be treated as seriously as it can be treated as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and also to think too, I mean, Portugal is a very small country mm -hmm. with probably limited resources. And so, yeah. I mean, I can't think of, I don't know if, you know, I could be wrong, but, um, you know, something like this probably hadn't happened for yeah. a very long time. And so it was probably not known how to really mm -hmm. begin that process properly. It's funny that you say that because that's something that Jenna and I have discussed on multiple episodes is when you have a disappearance or a murder or whatever it may be in a small town, yep. even a small country, um, often the local police have no concept of how to handle this. Yeah. Um, when you're such a small um, you know, geographical area, you don't really have a standard procedure for something like this. There's no book that can walk you through how to find a missing girl. So yeah, yeah. that being said, I feel like there are some logical steps that should occur when something like this happens. Um, and I'll give you some examples to kind of fill you in on where I'm going here. Um, so the McCanns immediately felt that someone had taken her. This was not, my daughter might have wandered off. This was an immediate Kate McCann was very vocal about the fact that she has a feeling that she has been kidnapped. Um, and unfortunately, even with that being said, the police that ended up arriving on scene did not treat this like it was a crime scene. So the apartment itself, the bedroom, and the surrounding street was not taped off right away. It was not treated as a crime scene. Police and the McCanns themselves were in and out of the apartment um, and as we know, um, as true crime fanatics, the crime scene is incredibly important. You know, that's where the answers to your questions are going to be found. Um, and yeah. so and it kind of blows my mind to think, too, that the police, you know, you have a small three year old child that is disappearing while the windows wide open. You know, like how would you expect a three year old to open up yeah. a window? climb out of it yeah and disappear you know like so that you know looking you know from the outside in it seems very odd but yeah. you know we, we we don't know all of the um you know what happened exactly yeah so. that's true 
Another thing that was frustrating for viewers and for the McCanns themselves was the borders. Um, like you said, Portugal is a very small country and the border to Spain is incredibly close. It's not a very large geographical area. Um, and the McCanns poked a lot of their frustration at the Portuguese police for not closing down the borders. Um, if someone had kidnapped Madeline, which most people believe is what happened, it seems like the first thought would be that you would want to get out of the country. I mean, if you're the person kidnapping her, you would in theory want to get as far away from the scene as you probably can get. Um, and it's interesting with Madeline in specific, because if anybody has seen pictures of her, she is a very distinctive looking girl. Um, she's an attractive young girl and she has a birthmark on her eye that it kind of misshapens her pupil a little bit, and uh, it's very distinctive. Yeah, something that could have easily been picked out mm -hmm. if she were seen. And that being said, if you're kidnapping a girl with distinctive features, there's going to be an immediate desire, I guess if you're of any intelligence, to make sure that she's not seen, yeah. because she's going to be easily recognizable. Um, this wasn't a child that somebody could kidnap and pretend is their own and go about life as normal, which sometimes has happened in kidnapping cases. Um, and this isn't really the case here with Madeline. Um, even the Portuguese police made public statements saying that we're going to stop all traffic and we want to question any suspicious looking vehicles. But if you watch the Netflix documentary, they make a point of filming the Portuguese police at the borders where they're just standing in a group talking and all of these cars are just driving by. And so the roadblocks and the closing of the borders were extremely delayed. Right. And that's and very hard. lax. Yeah. Sounds. Yep. Very lax, very delayed. Um, any attempts to get CCTV footage, which are security cameras um, from the surrounding businesses and apartment complexes happened very slowly and sporadically. And as we know, Footage from CCTV can get taped over if it's not retrieved quickly. Um, the dogs that are trained to pick up scents, they were not immediately brought in. Due to all the confusion surrounding what might have happened, there were a lot of hours that were wasted looking for her at the resort instead of considering the possibility that she was no longer in the resort, let alone the country. Right. So what a lot of people say is that, you know, you've got professional you know, service animals that are trained to pick up scent. And if you bring them into the crime scene, the goal is that they can pick up the scent and at least track it to where she may have been put in a car. And if you can follow the scent down the street to where a car may have been waiting, you open up the possibility to more witnesses that may have seen a car parked on that location. Right. So it's kind of things along these lines that don't make the Portuguese police look particularly great at the beginning of the investigation. Yeah. And the final piece of the puzzle that I think really seals the deal on whether the general public or the McCanns feel like they did a great job is, I don't know if anybody has seen this picture. I should have posted it on our Facebook page. Um, but the Portuguese police release a sketch that was created on witness accounts. Um, and these witness accounts were people who felt like they had seen someone that night that may have looked suspicious in any way. And the sketch that is released to national and local media outlets is legitimately an oval-shaped object with scraggly lines that represent hair. <laughs> that is it. It legitimately <laughs> looks like an egg with hair. So a five-year-old drew yes. the picture of who? Yes. 
took Madeline. Uh huh. And that was that will be very easy to narrow down. It would, yeah, absolutely. So it's things like this that, looking back, obviously we're all looking in hindsight here. I mean, yeah. in hindsight, they should have closed the borders down. In hindsight, why would you look in the resort? It's very unlikely that she's there. You right. know, and it's easy for us to say that that seems a little bit silly, maybe even negligent, but you know, none of us have any professional background that can really comment on that. So right, right. Well, this all being said, um, where did the investigation lead over the years? So Kate McCann, as well as her husband, Jerry, were incredibly vocal about their feelings for the Portuguese police agencies that assisted in looking for their daughter. So in a way that I'm kind of poking holes in the investigation, um, Kate McCann did this publicly um, to any journalist that would listen to her. And I don't necessarily blame her in that. Yeah, I feel like any parents that, you know, if their child is missing and they aren't, you know, they aren't returned within, you know, a few days, like, naturally they're going to think the police is not doing their job. Yeah, I think that's a pretty normal reaction for a family that has such an awful thing happen to them. Right. I think where the mistake comes from is denouncing it publicly, Um, you know, and and looking at this, and it's hard to see because we aren't specialists at this, but... Uh you know, it seems like they kind of weren't. So that's also the challenge of this. Mm -hmm. So Kate goes on national television. And and that being said, like at this point in the case with her speaking out publicly against the the Portuguese police, um, this is, had already become national and worldwide news. So it's frustrating to the Portuguese police because she's essentially... um, being vocal and criticizing them to the entire world. Um, And so for the locals there, it's frustrating for them because it's turning their town into a nightmare. And it's, it's hard for them because they feel like before Madeline disappeared, this was an incredibly safe area. So it's hard, you know, looking at it from all sides, you can understand their frustration, but you can understand how unfortunate it is for the police that are doing their best to investigate. So some people believe that this is these public statements by the McCanns is what led the Portuguese police to start taking the comments personally and turning their investigation into an investigation of the parents themselves. So the next few months of the investigation, um, police bring dogs that are trained to search for blood at the crime scene. Um, these dogs alert on multiple occasions to blood in the McCann's apartment in Praia de Luz, where Madeline went missing from. So these investigators go as far as to make a statement following the discovery of the blood that says Kate and Jerry McCann are involved in the concealment of the body of their daughter, Madeline McCann. That's, that's pretty ballsy to just throw out there. And it seems almost, it's almost like they, it's like this whole lawyer thing where, you know, they, they throw out this, you know, like where were you? And they immediately uh-huh. spin it back and try to denounce the parents yeah. instead of going, we didn't handle this well, mm-hmm. we're going to do better. It's yeah. like, well, you know what, now we think you're in it. Exactly. And that's, it's as an outside viewer, this is exactly what it looks like happened. So you've got Kate going on worldwide television, denouncing the Portuguese police. And then you have the lead investigator of the, you know, the disappearance in the Portuguese police going on television talking badly about the McCanns and it becomes essentially a soap opera that is portrayed in front of the entire world 
where the viewers are kind of left looking like what's being done to find her throughout all of this yeah and the, and the fact that they didn't say well we've come across an evidence that may point that the parents had something to do with it they yeah. just go out and they go yeah they they did something with the body Absolutely. they were they were a part of it it's it's incredibly frustrating in my personal opinion and it's interesting to me the lead investigator that i talked about um his name is gonzalo almoral he eventually goes to write a book about his own personal beliefs that the McCanns murdered their own daughter. And it's tough for me um, to look at that and not feel like it's a bit unprofessional um, yeah. as an investigator and to be able to call yourself a lead investigator, be able to turn something as serious as a three-year-old being kidnapped into a personal vendetta that you have against the parents in the situation. So these clashes in the media turn the entire disappearance or potential kidnapping into sort of reality TV um, that's being broadcasted all over the world by Portuguese, British, and even American news stations. So once the Portuguese police determined that the McCanns are actual suspects in their own daughter's disappearance, okay. the McCanns say, fuck this, like, we don't want to be in Portugal anymore. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, so I think it's four months or so into the investigation that Portugal, or the police in Portugal, I should say, say the McCanns must have done it. They're hiding something, and they are legitimate suspects that we're investigating. The McCanns leave, and a lot of people that are watching all this happen are very critical of the McCanns leaving Portugal. And it started to turn the average viewer against the McCanns as well, which is unfortunate yeah. because as somebody watching all this happen, a lot of people's thoughts were, why would you leave the country where your daughter went missing without her four months into the investigation? Um, and I, personally, I think that it's tough. I mean, yes, you would want to be local to the investigation, but if the investigation is leading to you, and you know that that's a dead end because you know that you have nothing to do with it. Um, I don't know why I personally would want to stay in the country either. Um, so when you kind of consider like where the Portuguese police are coming from here, you would have to really sit back and consider whether the McCanns could murder their own daughter. And finding blood in the apartment is what the Portuguese police use to say Madeline was murdered in the apartment. So if you take that theory and you put it into reality, the McCanns would have had to go to dinner with their friends somehow either before or after murder their daughter and then multiple witnesses would have to enter the apartment and not see anything suspicious. Right. Um, and then there's the theory that, that the Portuguese police legitimately took seriously that the other friends at dinner had something to do with it as well. Yeah, well, I, I think the part that's, at least in my opinion, is really doesn't make sense is, you know, there's always a reason that these happen. You know, what, what would they have to gain from this? Yeah, the motive. Right? You know, was there, you know, what what came about it that would benefit McCann's and, yeah, you know, and or hurt them and, you know, it to me, it just, yeah, it just doesn't make sense, which, you know, leads us to the issue of, you know, the Portuguese police pointing fingers at them. It's yeah. like, 
they really don't have a whole lot to stand on. No, in my opinion, they don't at all. So it's interesting that we kind of go on this tangent because there are a lot of people, and I'm, I don't mean to like talk about this negatively because everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but there are a lot of people that legitimately believe that the McCants had something to do with it. And we're skimming over a lot of the evidence here for the sake of time. There are little things here and there that maybe could lead people to believe that. Question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my opinion, there's a lot more evidence that leads away from that. But there are there are lots of people that believe the McCanns are part of some kind of conspiracy to murder their daughter or play it off as a kidnapping, and that they know where the body is. Um, yeah. Like I said, I find that un- not really plausible. But yeah, and you know, and and Celia and I are not professionals in any way, Definitely and do- nor do we a hundred percent believe that they had nothing to yeah. do with it. We just, from what we've seen in the evidence. It seems highly unlikely. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, that's where we're kind of sharing from that point of view. Yeah. So, interestingly enough, the McCanns aren't the only suspects that were investigated in the um, in the years that follow. Um, there's a man named Robert Mura. He was one of the first people before the McCanns even to be named a suspect in the case. And this happened about seven days after the disappearance of Madeline. If you watch the documentary that I mentioned, I want to say it is. Let's see. It's called The Disappearance of Madeline McCann, and it's on Netflix here in America. Um, you can watch this, and they go into very good detail on why Robert Mira was a suspect. Um, but essentially, he was a man who, like many of the surrounding citizens, put themselves into the investigation in order to help. Um, and because of other circumstances and details that the documentary goes into, he essentially the police look at him as the type of person that might be putting himself into the investigation to get more details. Um, So they begin investigating him really heavily due to his proximity to the Praia de Luz resort. Um, And so he jumps to the top of the list and they even go as far as to drain his pool. Um, They search his home. Um, It's even there are members of his own workplace that end up being questioned in relation to the murder. Um, and this is just yet another lead that ends up being a dead end. So it's eventually, he's eventually cleared of the um, suspicion and they move on to investigating other people. Um, so the McCanns themselves, like we said, they become suspects. And it's hard because even though they become suspects, even that lead ends up going nowhere. And over time, the case kind of fizzles out. Right. And so in 2008, the Portuguese police consider the disappearance of Madeline McCann legally closed. And this is essentially them saying that we're really sorry, but we cannot figure this out and we cannot keep wasting taxpaying dollars on it. Right. So this is where the McCanns decide to Um, attempt to provide their own investigators and they partner with a British agency that steps in and begins the investigation over from scratch and I want to say this is sometime after 2008 Um, so the British agency they don't really have time on their side at all during this investigation Um, the agency immediately determines that Kate and Jerry McCann have nothing to do with the disappearance and they immediately begin investigating other routes I understand that in the sense that I personally don't believe the McCanns had much to do with the disappearance, but I don't think that it's a coincidence that the British agency, where the McCanns are from Great Britain, um, would rule that the McCanns maybe didn't have anything to do with it. I think that there's the possibility that there's some 
other reasons that they might have ruled that, but that's kind of besides the point. Um, one of the representatives of the British agency says that their ultimate goal in helping here was to provide closure to the family. So the British agency that steps in, they begin their own theory that Madeline may have disappeared due to a burglary gone wrong. Um, some other theories that we hear over the years is that Madeline may have been sold into sex slavery, that she might have been abducted by a local sex offender. Um, and really, that's kind of where the case goes. It's a lot of, you know, he said, she said. Um, there's not really a lot of evidence to go on. Yeah, I mean, just a lot of speculation. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's incredibly frustrating for the people that are close to the McCanns, the McCanns themselves. It's also incredibly frustrating for the people that live around the resort because it's that idea of were the McCanns targeted or do we have something that we need to be genuinely worried about in our own neighborhood? So um, the case gets talked about here and there over the years. Um, Oprah Winfrey's talk show appealed to the potential kidnapper and asked them to release her on her show in 2009. In 2011, Kate McCann releases the first of three books that she would eventually write on the disappearance of her daughter. Um, the first being her initial take on being investigated and she kind of airs out her frustrations with the Portuguese police, which I'm sure just pisses them off even more at that point. And then she releases two subsequent books where she provides updates to the case and where the McCanns have gone with their lives at this point. Um, and then in 2019, the documentary that I keep getting, I keep talking about gets released on Netflix. However, the McCanns don't participate. Um, it, they actually go as far as saying that they believe this show is going to jeopardize the current investigation. Oh. So that's kind of where the case goes until actually very recently. So we can fast forward to what's now 2020. Some people might say this has been the worst year ever, but it's interesting that we finally have seen a development in this case. Which um, is crazy. 12, yeah. 12 years later, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. And, and after hearing basically nothing since 2008. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how you feel about this lead. I want to share it with everybody who maybe hasn't ever heard of this new lead. It, it's as recent as June 2020. So a note was recently left at the Praia de Luz Resort. And it was found by a maintenance worker. And this note that's left anonymously essentially implicates a man by name as being a suspect. And the note even goes as far as to say that this man dumped her body in a reservoir that is about two miles away from the resort. Nobody knows who left the note, why they might have left it, or how accurate it is, but it prompts a whole investigation into the person that's named. Okay. So... Since the note was found, BKA, which is, a, I want to say, an English police force, they step in and they now formally begin investigating this new lead. And they make a public statement saying that a known German sex offender is being investigated on suspicion of murdering Madeline McCann. Wow. That's a pretty, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, like, that's a pretty bold statement. Direct statement. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's incredibly direct. They're going as far as to say that this German sex offender, they're investigating him specifically for the murder of her. Not even necessarily the kidnapping. That's very direct word that choice. That he's even, you know, like that they have evidence that could point to him being related to it. Yeah. It's just, once again, yeah. very direct. Absolutely. So the statement from the BKA also says that this person is a 43-year-old man known as Christian B. Um, I found his name in another article that says it's Christian Brute 
Bruckner, I want to say. And they say that he was living just about a quarter mile from Praia de Luz in May of 2007, which is when Madeline disappeared. So news reports that were released on September 16th, so literally three days ago, go as far as to say that this man, Christian Bruckner, may have had an accomplice who helped him snatch Madeline from the apartment. Christian Brunecker was sentenced to seven years in court for raping a 70, I'm sorry, a 72-year-old American woman in Portugal in 2005. And so it's interesting, some people kind of look at this and they say, oftentimes criminals tend to offend in similar ways. Right. And so it's hard for some people to understand why somebody who has raped a 72-year-old would be directly tied to abducting a three-year-old. The age difference doesn't make sense to some people. Um, And I watched a brief news clip from a BKA spokesperson giving this whole spiel as to why he feels like you can't look at it that deep, basically. Um, And I don't know. It's going to be up to our listeners to kind of determine how they feel about it. But... I am curious what a, a German citizen is doing in Portugal. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, not saying that they're far away, but just was he there for work? Did yeah. he vacation there? You know? And it's interesting that you say that because when they say that he was living just a quarter mile from Praia de Luz, I might be making this up because, like I said, these reports are so new that mm-hmm. a lot of what I found was in Portuguese and it was in German. And I was actually struggling to find English articles that gave all the information in one article. So I kind of pieced this part of the podcast out of multiple articles that I found that happened to be in English. But basically, the quarter mile from Praia de Luz was him living like in a field, like in a mobile home or something along those lines. Okay. Um, and it might have been like a mobile home park where multiple people were living there. But either way, he wasn't like living in like the village by any standards. So in my opinion, that kind of makes the circumstances almost a little bit more creepy. Yeah. You've got a 43-year-old man who has once been convicted of raping a 72-year-old woman, you know, and he's living just a quarter mile from where this young girl disappears. And it's kind of like we talked about earlier with the guy being seen walking across the street yeah maybe not a coincidence yeah i mean that that points or that uh brings up some weird coincidences yeah it's kind of in in general just a bit suspicious in my opinion yeah so the german authorities have released a statement also on september 16th where they say that they do not expect or have any intentions of finding madeline mccann alive based on what they know of their investigation on their end yeah. So it's interesting now you've got you've got a British agency investigating, you have the Portuguese police that were in, investigating at one point. Now you've got German authorities investigating. Um, and then you've got the armchair um, investigators, like people who are often interested in true crime and the Reddit community that have delved into the evidence and are trying to solve this as well. So I'm hoping, you know, with this breakthrough supposedly coming recently that, we will come to a close with the case and at least get answers for the McCanns and for Madeline. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now it's kind of up to us to, you know, look at these new leads with, um, I don't know, with like a, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. We need to look at these new leads 
and not necessarily point the fingers, but hope that more evidence is found that kind of leads us to be able to make a decision. But right. it's tough. I mean, this is the last lead that we've gotten in the last 13 years at this point. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't I mean, know. After this, more evidence could come forth. You know, yeah. They could have somebody that is, you know, so was he officially convicted or did they just kind of point the finger and that's where it's at so far? So right now with the Madeline McCann case, they're pointing the finger. Okay. Um, and even with the case of the American woman getting raped, a lot of my information that I found was kind of spotty. Like it, the timeline of events is really confusing to me because if he raped her in 2005, I read that he was convicted of it. So if he was convicted, how was he in Playa de Luz in 2007? So I'm still kind of foggy on what exactly is going on in the timeline. Right. Like I said, some of it was in Portuguese and German. But I'm hoping over the next couple of weeks that we're going to see, you know, more yeah. developments here in the case. So yeah, that's where we're at with the Madeline McCann case. Okay. Yeah, that's a... Um, I didn't know all the details of that and i think that's a an interesting one to kind of keep track of especially mm -hmm. since it's we still have evidence that's coming forth and hopefully yeah. we get some sort of close i think that's what everybody can hope for is yeah. that you know it's it's awful to think you know that most likely madeline is dead yeah. but i think you know the family you know even us as we're looking at this, we would love to have some sort of closure on that. Yeah, it's so. tough. It's like my grandma made the comment of how this reminds her of the John Benet Ramsey case, which is completely accurate. That's another case of a little girl um, ending up, unfortunately, having been murdered. Um, that has been a cold case for what I think over two and a half decades now, I mm. want to say. Okay. And it's just, it's hard with cold cases. They're interesting because they allow you to kind of theorize and you can kind of paint this picture of what might have happened. But it's tough because at the end of the day, you just don't have answers. So, yeah. Yeah. but I feel like your case that you're going to share with us is completely different. I mean, we have answers in this case, yeah. you know, but yeah. it's upsetting and it's frustrating in its own way. Right. Right. Yeah. So to kind of start on my case, um, you know, I may not be as much in the true crime as, as Celia and Jenna, but, um, you know, I still find it very interesting. One thing that uh, I love is history and specifically military history. I find it to be just so interesting, you know. And uh, so I thought, you know, and Celia had brought this up that she thought it would be a good idea that I find a case that kind of brings both of those together. together. And uh, so... This one is, is what's called the Mahmoudia Rape and Killings, and uh, just kind of a coincidence happened actually right around the same time. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, wow. So to kind of set the, the scene, this is uh, spring of 2006. Mm -hmm. uh, so U.S. and coalition forces have been in Iraq for about three years now. And, you know, to kind of give more of a broad picture, you know, this is after 9-11, uh, you know, George... W. Bush, you know, brings the U.S. military into Iraq to help mm -hmm. fight, uh, you know, the Taliban and uh, insurgents, Iraqi insurgents. It so wasn't always received well at that point. Right. So as you can imagine, tensions are very high in Iraq as, you know, it's really, it's ripped apart by war. Um, you know, suicide bombings are happening sometimes on a daily basis, killing both sides, both soldiers and you know, Iraqis themselves, uh, you know, so just to kind of 
give some events that have taken place. So like September 14th of 2005, they call it the Baghdad bombings, and it's the daily, uh, the deadliest day uh, of the insurgency in Baghdad, where 160 people um, are killed. And in over one day. In, yeah, one day. Oh my god. And over 500 people are injured. And then November nineteenth uh, of two thousand five, you have what's called the, uh, I believe it's called the Hadithic killings. Mm-hmm. So American soldiers kill twenty four people when they are in uh, in a firefight with insurgents, and uh, twenty four people die, and fifteen of those people are non combatants. Oh, so they're um, civilians. Yeah. Casualty. So you can imagine that tensions on both sides are very high. You yeah. have the U.S. and coalition forces that, are, of course, are there to fight the insurgents, and you also have the Iraqis that view the these forces, these outside forces, as you know, creating so much, you know, so many problems for their country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, a poll that took place in December of 2005 showed that, you know, upwards of 82 to 87 percent of Iraqi population was opposed to having you know the United States in their country, which yeah. Really, you know that that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Uh, you know, so, uh, so really, our story uh, focuses on this fourteen-year-old girl, and her name is Abir Kasim Hamza El Janabi, and I know that's a mouthful, uh, but Abir means fragrance of flowers in Arabic. Aww. So, and I'll say that one more time, just so you know, Abir Kasim Hamza El Janabi, who we'll just call Abir. So she's this 14-year-old girl. She's growing up in a neighborhood outside of Baghdad in a town called Mahmoudia. And so she lives with her two parents. Uh, her mom's name is Fakria, and her father's name is Kasim. And they have, uh, she has three younger siblings. So the family, you know, is at this time is growing up in, in poverty. Iraq is a very poor country, and it's also a poor country that is being gripped by war. Uh, and, um, so, you know, this was really not unlike families around her, you know, many, many people are living in poverty. Yeah. So, you know, they live a very modest life, um, but they, you know, they're getting by. The, uh, father works as a guard at a date orchard, Mm -hmm. you know, and just like anything, he wants his family to be happy and healthy and he wants to move to Baghdad where even though, this war is going on, he knows that he'll be able to make better money, yeah. he'll be able to provide for his family, mm-hmm. and hopefully have it be safer in Baghdad. So he's got a lot of ambition for his family, and his. it sounds like he's got, you know, he hopes that his family can kind of climb out of the situation that right. they're currently in. Right. So you have the family of six, so you have Abir, her three um, uh, siblings, mm-hmm. you have a younger sister, two younger brothers, mm-hmm. and then the father and the wife. So you have six of them. They're currently living in a one-bedroom apartment, you Jeez. know, so very, very, you know, tightly packed into this apartment. I think that I think that my family and most families would not survive in a one-bedroom apartment. I know <laughs> that I personally would not no. have survived no. with my family. So they can attest to that, I'm sure, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I you know, and... and for them, I think it was a, just a normal way of life. Yeah. Um, but, so, you know, Iraq at this time, you know, with the war going on, it is a very frightening place to live. You know, and especially for a young girl like Abir. Yeah. You know, so you have these suicide bombings happening on a regular basis. Um, you know, you have 
firefights breaking out. You have insurgents coming in and out of these neighborhoods trying to bring people into, you know, their, you know, their forces to help fight the Americans and the coalition. Yeah. So, um, so the Janabi family, we'll call them the Janabi family just for sim- simplicity. Uh, you know, so they live in this, this small apartment. Uh, Abir, who is 14, she's not able actually to go to school anymore. Her father pulls her out because he doesn't feel safe with her going. Yeah. And, uh, but her, t- her uh, two younger brothers, they are allowed to go to a closer school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I unfortunately don't have their ages, but they are, they are much younger. So um, really where we see the story begin is, uh, you know, the dreams of this family, the Janabi family are going to be cut short. So the remains of Abir, Fakria, and Kasim would be found on March 12th of 2006 after the locals are alerted to this smoke billowing out of their apartment. So, you know, upon examining the scene, the Iraqi soldiers that show up to, you know, to find out what's going on, they report that the incident, uh, or they report the incident to an Ameri- the American checkpoint, uh, saying that, hey, we found these, these charred bodies mm-hmm. in this apartment. So is that them basically, you know, finding this scene and then kind of asking for help a little bit in the investigation? Yes, exactly. That so, um, so there's rumors going around already that uh, it may have been committed by by Sunni insurgents. Mm, and okay. to kind of give some backstory, you have the two sides of Islam, you know, and they they unfortunately do not like each other. Yeah. And so it would make sense that this may have happened, mm-hmm. like a religious, you know, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. So. So later that day, the local American Army platoon stationed in Iraq, uh, you know, started to begin asking kind of their own questions on what might have happened. So before long, truth comes out that five members of the United States Army actually murdered these three people. That's awful. And and then it was come to find out that they had actually raped a beer. And then killed her as well. And that was five Americans. Five Americans, yes. Oh Soldiers that are there in the country, you know, to fight these insurgents. Uh, and, you know, really, as the government would say, you know, to protect your yeah. average Iraqi. And it's really hard then to kind of continue that argument in certain ways that we're there to protect when you hear something like this happen. It's so, it's so upsetting. Right. So we're going to kind of break down the scene of what what took place so you can mm-hmm. kind of get the details of that so this day march 12th you have five soldiers so you have stephen green you have james barker paul cortez jesse spielman and brian howard mm-hmm. okay so they're all in the same platoon they're all buddies, per se. buddies. Mm-hmm. they're you know if you're in the military they're brothers in arms yeah so they're shooting the shit. they're drinking local whiskey Mm-hmm. Uh, they're hitting golf balls. They're playing cards, just kind of hanging out. Most likely, they, you know, they, uh, they're not on duty. So they start talking about this girl that they've seen, a beer. Uh, they don't know her name, of course, but they've seen her at the checkpoint. And Stephen Green starts talking about how he wants to, he 
he wants to rape her. And the other guys are kind of chiming in, and they start talking about how, you know what, they want to go, they want to go and kill some Iraqis. I'm sorry, but it's so fucking disgusting to think that this is a real conversation that took place. Like, you know what I mean? Like, to think that five men sat around a card table drinking and shooting the shit in reality had a conversation as disgusting as this. Like, I'm sorry, but... No, it is, it is, you know, it's, it's hard to swallow and kind of listen. Yeah, definitely. You know, so they, Stephen brings up that he knows where this girl lives. So it kind of sounds like, in a way, in this conversation, he's a little bit of the instigator here. Because it's like, he made the first comment about wanting her, and now he goes as far as to say that he knows how to do it and get in. Right, exactly. Exactly. So... He knows where she lives, and he gets the guys to agree, let's do this. And so they strip off their uniform. They're not wearing American uniforms. Mm -hmm. They put on basically army long johns, Mm -hmm. and Stephen actually goes as far as to put on a ski mask. And then they grab AK-47s, which sounds odd because you would think that they, you know, they want to be, of course, protected, I would guess, Mm -hmm. but they're not grabbing their U.S., you know, firearms, like an M4 and M16. So you can kind of look at this as that they wanted to, if they knew they were going to kill somebody, they didn't want it to be brought back to the U.S. military. So it's very premeditated. Exactly, exactly. So they go out, and also, what's a really big detail of this, this is the middle of the day. This isn't nighttime. Oh, what the hell? So they're doing this while the sun's out. So they start going through, and they find her house, and they break in, and inside the house is the mom and dad, Mm -hmm. the sister, the younger sister, and a beer. Mm -hmm. So Stephen takes the younger sister and the the mother and father into another room Mm -hmm. and closes the door, and the four guys that are there uh, basically start ripping off the clothes of a beer, holding her down. And, you know, and raping her and taking turns with her. That's disgusting. Right. I mean, so it's, and this is, you know, this is hard. Yeah, that's really You know, and she's crying, and they they don't understand her because she's speaking Arabic. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they can, you know, to them, this is just, you know, this is what they wanted to do. It's disgusting in the sense that it's like, it's animalistic. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, ugh. You know, and whether they viewed, you know, and most likely they viewed them as lesser people or they just didn't give a shit or maybe they were justifying it that their, you know, some of their brothers had been wounded or killed. And so that that was, this was them getting back at the Iraqi people, whatever. It feels a little bit like a hate crime almost. Yeah. You know what I mean? It is, it is sick. So while they're, you know, they're each taking turns with her, they hear five or six uh, shots in the other room. Gunshots. Gunshots. And Steven comes out and he says, I killed him. I I shot him. Mm -hmm. So he's murdered these people in the other room and then he's come out. So the other guys are like, you know, they're like, okay. Steven then takes his turn with a beer, rapes her, and then he gets up and he shoots her two or three times in the head and kills her after he's done. So, you know, this guy is fucked up. I mean, it's not, 
There's no question yeah, about it. Yeah, there's no question, you know, this, this guy is a brutal fucking crime. Whether the other guys were thinking this was going to happen or not, they yeah. were there. They took part. They didn't necessarily mm -hmm. kill the people, but, you know, they saw it happen. Yeah. And then they all went back to the base after that. And fucking continued about their lives? Yeah. Well, oh and I, I do forget one uh, detail. They did pour kerosene all over the bodies and light them on fire. Probably to try to cover it all To up. try to cover up oh the evidence. God. So that's originally what alerts the Iraqi forces and other people mm -hmm. is that there's smoke coming out, the, uh, out of the apartment. Wow. So what really kind of sets this aside from, you know, your uh, story is that they blatantly bragged about this with their buddies about how they killed a bunch of Iraqis and how they raped an Iraqi. I'm trying to understand like what the thought process there would be like. Did they, I wonder if they thought that they were going to be met with like praise? You know what I mean? Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this whole crime took maybe five minutes, which is really crazy. Yeah. You know, they were in and out. And then to come back and tell the rest of their platoon, yeah, I did this. You know, and what's the really the frustrating part is the fact that the whole platoon heard this and they didn't, nothing really came of it, oh, which is frustrating because, and, and this is where you get into the psychological aspect of being in the military that can be mm -hmm. very hard and that, you know, when you're in the military together, you're your brothers in arms, you're, mm -hmm. you've got each other's back. And not to make excuses for No, them. no. It, a lot of times, you know, in, in good times, that's great. That's what you yeah. need. You need somebody. But mm -hmm. in bad times, you know, and the military also has this, this very poor aspect of when you break that, that trust or that bond, mm -hmm. there is retaliation Absolutely. of that. So a lot of these fellow platoon members, they don't want to speak out, even if they're like, what the fuck? And it's like, you know, in a normal workplace, not that the military is not a normal workplace, but it is very different in the sense that you have to consider in a massive company, like let's say um, Amazon or whatever the case may be, you've got an HR system, you know, you have an HR representative that is supposed to be in place to kind of make sure retaliation doesn't exist in the workplace. And the military is not like that. Absolutely right. not like that. Right. It's not the opposite. Well, and, and, and the frustrating part, too, is that the, the military, especially since they're in a foreign country, they were trying to portray themselves as, as kind of the saviors of coming in and bringing the peace and taking down the bad guys and hear that their own soldiers are causing these kinds of problems, raping and murdering, you know, innocent people is, you know, it's really hard. And so and it's they're, bad publicity. It is. It's very bad publicity. You know, if Americans at home are hearing about this, this could very much turn them off against the war, and they no longer mm -hmm. want to send their sons or their daughters over to this country, mm -hmm. you know. And so this is exactly what happens, um, you know, for a few weeks. It's it's just it's brushed under the rug. And covered up. And covered up. Ugh. So one of the platoon members, his name is, and I, I apologize on the last name, I'm not sure exactly how to say it, but his, uh, his name is Sergeant Anthony... Is it Nabri? Mm -hmm. So he learns about this and he hears about it and he's disgusted. Yeah. He's like, what the fuck? But he's scared. Yeah. He's scared that if he talks out, he's going to have some sort of retaliation. Which is probably what would happen. True. You know, and it is not 
it is not um, out of the question to have what is called fragging. Mm -hmm. So when you have, uh, when, a, when a group of soldiers does not like a fellow soldier, they will accidentally cause some sort of mistake, whether a grenade accidentally uh -huh. goes off or somebody stepped on a, you know, like, yeah. a, and it kills this person that they do not like. So he knows that this could possibly happen. Yeah. And so he confides in a fellow soldier named Justin Watts uh, that he knows that these five soldiers have done this, but mm -hmm. he doesn't know what to do. Yeah. He's basically at like, I, I don't know who to go to. I'm scared. Yeah. You know, like I like my job in the army and I do not want that, you know, cause it's not uncommon for, you know, the military when something happens that they yeah. kick you out. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of saying, yeah, let's take a look at this, they just kick you out. Not that it's an excuse either. And no. I think that that is not that we're not doing a good job of that, but I think it's incredibly important to make the point that in my personal opinion, I will go as far as to say that this Anthony guy is a, a fucking idiot, just like the rest of them, that mm -hmm. even though you're afraid of, you know, the retaliation and things along those lines, this is a crime that is so disgusting and it's so brutal that to have knowledge of it happening and to not try to do something about it. I know that, you know, we're talking about the psychology here and why, you right. know, he didn't do it. And we're doing that in a way to help people understand the mentality, but it's in no way um, giving him any benefit of the doubt, in my opinion. Right. So, right. So Justin uh, Watts, the, the, the soldier that hears of this. So he's a new soldier yeah. uh, that's just come in. Mm -hmm. He's immediately disgusted. And he's like, I'm going to, he basically decides that whatever he needs to do, he's going to get this news out. Yeah. And he, he's scared, but it's more important for him. Mm -hmm. And so he's able to bring that up to the chain of command. And eventually, I mean, uh, it is once again, tried to be brushed under the rug. Mm -hmm. Okay. We'll look into it you know, from his higher ups. And they even go as far as to tell him that, uh, to charge him, uh, the military does, saying that he's being too forward with evidence. And he's just oh my god, blowing us up way too quickly without the proper, yeah, the proper channels but being alerted. investigating. Right. Oh my god. So for a while, it's quiet until the media gets a hold of this. And this is really where it, it um, blows up and things actually start to happen. Yeah. So the media finds out and so this is a this is several months after this has happened. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Green, who is considered kind of the, you know, the one that started this whole thing, and mm -hmm. he's considered the, the ringleader. Leader. Yep. Yep. Uh, he's been uh, out of the army. They basically gave him a honorable discharge due to a personality trait disorder that they saw in him, mm -hmm. which is another way of saying. We think he's kind of fucked up, so we'll just let him go and, you know. Yeah. So he, at this time, is a civilian. The other four are still in the military. Okay. So it get, this goes to trial, mm -hmm. uh, and all of them receive some sort of punishment, which is great because I think after hearing of the horrible things that they do, yeah, that we all want to hear that these – fuckheads are yeah. behind bars. Absolutely. So to start, Stephen Green, who is at the time a civilian, actually gets tried as 
a regular person. Which if people don't maybe necessarily know how the military works in terms of charging people and crimes, um, the military judicial system is completely separate from the standard judicial system in the United States. So in this case, you've got Stephen Green, the ringleader, who's already left the military. And so he's subjected to the, you know, the full force of the American judicial system, whereas some of the others that are still active duty, they are being tried in military court, which is handled differently, right? Exactly. Yeah. So on July 6th of 2006, uh, Green enters a plea deal of not guilty, which is, yeah, which is crazy. So his lawyer at the time argues that... Stephen acted out because he was so angry due to having his fellow soldiers killed in battle, and that's why he did it. So that's supposed to be an excuse. Right, which, you know, it's like, I can understand the frustration of seeing your soldiers killed, but that doesn't give you the excuse to go find a 14-year-old girl, Mm -hmm. you know, gang raper, and then murder her family. And a 14-year-old girl that it almost sounds like he was fucking stalking, which, you know what I mean? It's just... It's disgusting. Yep. Yep. So you'll all be happy to know that he was sentenced. Originally, they wanted to give him the death penalty. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the, uh, well, I say unfortunately, but the, um, uh, let's see here. They were not able to come to the, the same conclusion of, yeah. of trying him uh, or for him to get the death penalty. So he is in. I think it's unfortunate. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he was found guilty of rape and multiple counts of murder. Uh, So the jurors failed, of course, to unanimously give him the death sentence. So he is sentenced to life in prison with no no possibility of parole. So he is going to rot in jail. Where he should, obviously. And hopefully, I mean, I don't know. We all know that there is a certain, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The prison system has its own judicial system of sorts. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but I'll go as far as to say that I will see where the the prison inmates take that. You know, the yeah. rape and murder of a little girl. Yeah, so if any of you guys want to know, he's in Arizona. So gotcha. Oh, and I guess this is, uh, <laughs> this is kind of disappointing. So he was found in 2014 hanged in his cell. Interesting. So it seems that he decided that he could not live. Yeah, he could not tolerate Mm. being in prison, and so he offed himself. That's fucking upsetting. I'm sorry, like, and I know it's tough, like, I don't know. It's so controversial to say what should or shouldn't happen, but what a disgusting way to end your life after having done something like that. So I guess that does take away some some of the... uh, you know prison yeah like we were all yeah. hoping that he would rot in jail and and yeah. uh, never see the light of day but he decided he was going to be uh, a coward and and take his own life so but uh, he was officially sentenced on May 7th of 2009 so it has been about 11 years wow so the next person James Barker so November 15th of 2006 he mm-hmm. pled guilty to rape and murder as part of his plea agreement uh, he had to give evidence uh, to the other soldiers yeah. to avoid the death penalty. Mm-hmm. So he was sentenced to 90 years in prison and must serve at least 20 years before being considered for parole. And he was dishonorably discharged. So that's a that's a big one, too. Yeah. So his whole military career is tarnished, and he's in prison 
for at least minimum of 20 years. Which I'm sorry, but it's so hard for me to, you know, rationalize with people like this, the thought of them getting parole. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And so he is currently rotting in Fort Leavenworth, which is the scary, scary military prison in Kansas that uh, is not... Not a pleasant place not to be. Not a pleasant place to be. Okay. So... Well... Yeah. So Paul Cortez, on January 22nd, 2007, he pled guilty in a court to rape, conspiracy to rape, and four counts of murder as part of a plea deal to avoid the death penalty as well. What you is know, up with all these, uh oh, plea deals are so frustrating sometimes. I know. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's just so hard. I know, I know. But, you know, sometimes that's the only way to get the full story yeah, of things. Yeah, that's, that's true. You know, it's leverage. Leverage. So he was sentenced to 100 years in prison, followed by a dishonorable discharge as well. And he gets to uh, basically share, not necessarily the same prison cell, but the same prison. So mm -hmm. he is in Fort Leavenworth as well. Okay. Jesse Spielman, uh, August 3rd, 2007, was sentenced uh, to 110 years in prison for the possibility of parole after 10 years, which is kind of, it's odd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there's logic there that we just don't maybe yeah. get to hear. And he, of course, was also given a dishonorable discharge. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was convicted of uh, rape, housebreaking with intent to rape, and four counts of felony murder. So, and then uh, Brian Howard was the last person that took place with the murder and the rape. Mm -hmm. And same thing. So, was sentenced uh, by a court martial under a plea agreement for obstruction of justice and being an accessory since uh, I actually don't believe he was a part of the rape, but he helped to break into the house and he watched everything happen. Yeah. So the court found his involvement, including the hearing of, a, of the others discussing the crime and lying to protect them, but not commission of the actual rape or murder. So gotcha. he served a 27-month sentence uh, at Leavenworth and was dishonorably discharged. So I guess he was the one that got off the lightest, but at the same time, he did not commit the murders or the rape. Gotcha. So Anthony, Sergeant Anthony Yabri. Which we talked about being right. the guy who brought that information to Justin Watts. Right, exactly. So he was the one that heard about this and was really torn about what he should do because yeah. he was worried. I don't know about So him. he was he was actually charged with obstructing the investigation, specifically dereliction of duty and making a false statement. Interesting. So in exchange for his testimony against the other men, the government dropped the charges against him and he accepted an administrative discharge characterized as other than honorable. Interesting. So Well, it's interesting to know if people aren't necessarily familiar with the military a dishonorable discharge is a similar concept to like a felony in the sense that that needs to be put on a job application for the rest of yeah. your life. Well, so. what other people don't realize too is the only thing you want from the military when you get out is an honorable discharge. Yeah. If you have anything other than that, it's not. It looks bad. It looks awful. Because people are going to go, well, what happened? Mm -hmm. You know, and so I feel like, and we don't know the whole story of everything, but I feel like he may have gotten screwed over a little bit on this. Yeah. Because. You know, I don't know, though. It's, you know, and, and, and we'll never be there. Yeah, you that's know? true. We'll never be in their boots to decide he should have fucking done it. Yeah. He should have told everybody immediately. Yeah. Or it's like, he was worried. You know, maybe he was worried for his family. Yeah, So that's true. Who knows, really, you know? Right. So the last part of this is Justin Watts, who 
basically is the one that brought this all to light. And in reality, I feel like without him, this we wouldn't be talking about this. Exactly. We would no. not be talking about no, this story. No, this would have been brushed under the rug, and everybody would have gone about their lives. And yeah. ha- four of these men would have continued to serve and oh possibly murdered or even raped other people. And we would have no idea that it's if it wasn't on. for Justin Watts. Yeah. So he, ultimately, we have him to thank for to thank for bringing all this evidence to light. Yeah. And it was come out that his life was torn apart. Um, they were wanting to kick him out of the military. He had oh threats uh, to his life and to his family, saying people saying that they were going to kill him. They were going to kill his family, oh and God. just awful things. But he was able to make make it through relatively unscathed. Yeah. Uh, which was great. One thing to note, which is kind of interesting, if you can kind of dig through the internet, is he did an AMA, which is an Ask Me Anything, on Reddit about the whole situation. Yeah, and if people don't know, Reddit is another form of social media that kind of works on like a form basis, where you've got this main thread that somebody asks a question or makes a post, and then all these people get to comment underneath it. And it's a little bit different from Facebook where you can have all of these different comments linked yep. under one thread. Right. And so he goes on Reddit and makes this post about like, hey, I took part in bringing these people to justice. Ask me any questions that you yeah. want. And that's amazing to me. Yeah. And for the most part, Reddit is anonymous. So it's you don't share your real name. You have a username. Mm-hmm. So it was where you can very easily and freely ask questions about this yeah, without feeling like somebody's right. going to retaliate against you right but to this day he says that he's he's very proud of what he did yeah uh and that he would do it again in a heartbeat yeah and i think that's great um but you know and and, and this this murder and this rape was horrible but it's really dark and it, heavy it is but it, at the same time it, it blows my mind of how hard the u.s military tried to hide this yeah and to think that there's probably 50 other, you know, or even more of God, these killings and, and rapes that we don't ever hear about. Mm-hmm. You know, one to just very briefly bring up the My Lai massacre that happened in Vietnam, you know, where a group of American soldiers literally shot and killed everyone in the small Vietnamese village, you know, because they couldn't handle the, the pressures of combat and a lot of them have PTSD. You know, things like this happen and they get... They tried to get, you know, hit under the rug. Well, it's just like at the beginning of our podcast, you know, touching base on the case about Vanessa, you know, in Texas. And I'm sorry, I'm calling her Vanessa because I I don't want to mispronounce her last name because I feel like it's tough. Right. But it's so disgusting. Like, this is a young woman who was brutally murdered and the entire thing was brushed under the rug. And it took the victim's parents digging and digging and digging and never like never letting it go for anything to even be discovered or brought to the media right and how many families in iraq do not have a spokesperson they don't have a justin watts to to represent them and to not let it go right it's incredibly sad right you know and there will always be casualties of war unfortunately and you know where there are mistakes you know do i think that u.s soldiers you know killed a lot of Iraqis on purpose, you know, that were civilians? No, I think most of them were accidents, but there are some like this that were, yeah. you know, they were either planned or premeditated or they just did it, 
you know, out of spite. Mm -hmm. And that's what's terrifying about it. And that's originally what kind of drew me to this. Yeah. And so I'm glad I got to share that with everybody so that everybody, mm -hmm. you know, knows of, of this. And it's what, an important, like, it's, it's an important concept that I feel like people need to slow down every once in a while and, and consider like, what goes on behind closed doors in, in these other countries that yeah. the average person is never going to go to, they're never going to see, they're never going to understand. Yeah. It's just, oh. Yeah. And so once again, just to make sure that everybody knows, it is called the Mahmoudia Rape and Killings, if you ever want to look that up and kind of do yeah. your own research on it. And but. I kind of helped Jason with some of the research here, and it was incredibly hard to find some of this information, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's really, it's a heavy hitter, in my opinion. Yeah. So. But other than that, that is all I have. And I just want to say I appreciate for uh, uh, letting me come on. Yeah, and, we're glad and, that uh, you did, though. Cover for Jenna. So I hope that she's proud for what I did and uh, that I lived up to her expectations. <laughs> Yeah, it was fun. It's really kind of cool to like switch it up a little bit. Like, I don't know. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, thank you guys for joining us today. Um, we're going to try to be back next week. It's just going to kind of depend on what we can figure out with Jenna. Um, and her, the whole COVID situation in Utah is kind of getting blown up again also. So we're going to try to take every precaution we can. But we'll see what we can figure out for working remote and things like that. Yep. So if you guys could... Um, you know, share this with your friends and your family. Um, you know, we've got a Facebook page. We are on Spotify. We are on Apple Podcasts. Um, it really helps us to grow when you guys leave comments on our actual published recordings. If you guys share our Facebook page, it's super helpful. Um, and we really appreciate all of the good feedback. And like we said at the beginning, kind of getting additional cases and recommendations. Right. So again, I appreciate everybody that's listening um, around the world, really. Yes. So you guys check back in next week and keep an eye on our Facebook page for updates on the COVID situation. Yeah. Have a great day. Everybody stay safe. Bye.